You were born with individual strengths and a unique purpose. Don't let fears, false beliefs, or life's happenings diminish your influence. It's time to live and lead for impact. Host Kirsten Ross, expert of transformation, will help you defeat the drama and overcome the trauma that can stop you in your tracks. You'll gain focus, find confidence, and take bold action. Unleash passionate, purposeful you. Let's go. Welcome to Live and Lead for Impact. I'm Kirsten Ross Vogel, your host, and this is episode 289. Today's guest, I'm so excited uh, to learn more about right along with you. His name is Daniel Matalon. He's producing a business model for the world game named by the design scientist Buckminster Fuller as an objective to make the world work for 100% of humanity. And wow, does that sound amazing. Mr. Matalon says it is a game that makes war obsolete as well. He is a co-founder of Impact Launchpad, a social impact venture studio, and the founder of the Is There Enough campaign, that's Pound, Is There Enough campaign, a new conversation about wealth, survival, and sustainability that he claims even a five-year-old can have. His upcoming book to be released at the end of the year suggests that we have an even greater threat to humanity than climate change. And we are about to hear about what he thinks that is. And Daniel, you have absolutely piqued my interest and survival and sustainability. I think that's on a lot of people's minds today. So welcome and thank you for joining me. I'm so glad to be here, Kirsten. And, um, you know, as you were going through and reading that, I'm going, that's a pretty good focus for a conversation. I'd like to listen to that. Um, <laughs> so it's very genuine what we'll be talking about here. Hopefully will be as much discovery for me in talking about it as it is for you. Yeah. So first, I just want to say, um, tell me a bit more about this game and how you're engaging people with that. And wow, a five-year-old can engage in a, in this conversation. The five-year-old part definitely comes from contributions and innovations we've made upon making what is called the world game accessible. And the world game was invented by Buckminster Fuller, who is, you know, certainly within the top hundred minds of all time. You know, you put him like there with Copernicus and, you know, the Buddha, <laughs> you know, in terms of truly humanity thinking level individuals. And, you know, in his case, we know him for the geodesic dome, like you'd see, you know, at, at Disney and so on, which is an incredible architectural structure. But he had some studies of the universe that sort of led him to express himself in that he wasn't a trained architect. And he's actually quoted as having said, I could have invented from what I was studying flying shoes, but I invented a geodesic dome, but it expressed what I was able to study and observe about the universe. That's his, his, his statement. And his proposition of a world game was to replace our war games, as in my interpretation, right? Because you don't have war without a war game. And part of the war game is that you're starting from a place of scarcity. Mm -hmm. That's thousands of years that's been true. That scarcity has been our life condition. The question of whether it was possible to have an alternative in human potential transformation movements, you know, that I've participated in for 30 years and teachers of mine for, for 50 or 70, you know, has been, you know, is there abundance? Is that is that more of our realistic perspective? And ultimately, we come down to this conversation of sustainability and what is really that. And, and in our case, uh, when we look at the way the world game was expressed by Buckminster Fuller, he said it was to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest time possible through spontaneous collaboration, which we're certainly about, uh, without affecting the environment or disadvantaging anyone, just as to redefine social impact as 100 
100% of humanity, like the way you think of towards a more perfect union. It's, you know, an ideal, it's a trajectory. It's the way MLK would say the arc of history bends towards justice, even with its, you know, jagged edges and so on, right? It's like, it's an, it is an, it is an articulatable reality that we have enough water and land and capability to grow food for every human being on the planet. And yet we're facing in 28 years, a billion people that will be homeless and without a passport. And we haven't got a clue about how we're going to deal with that as infrastructure, global infrastructure, a billion people. So we have this critical path that we're on. Are we going to continue to play our, our as Buckminster Fuller in his time would say, where our, where our great tools of life, our livingry come from weaponry, which is like the internet came from weaponry. The steel plow came from weaponry. All of our greatest advances are, are are reserved for war, but not for making the world work for 100% of humanity. How would we do that? So our response is, as simple as it is, in our conversation of is there enough, where we ask the question of is there enough, instead of asking this big question, how to make the world work for 100% of humanity, the way a five-year-old can understand it is a question called, is there enough? Which I accidentally stumbled onto talking to some people a few years ago um, about some objectives that I have that are you know very big for systemic finance evolution for how how social impact is funded and in an exasperation I said isn't there enough the very first time you know I ever you know came into contact with myself as a question and through that question what people begin to examine is that making the world work for 100% of humanity is all of our responsibility and even if you don't even think of the world as a globe in that sense of responsibility even in your own world whatever you define your world that we are all personally responsible for it so that's what the world game is, how to make the world work for 100% of humanity. And our response to it is to completely evolve very rapidly how we fund making the world work for 100% of humanity, which is not happening in governments or the immaturity of our international organizations. So it has to be done by private entrepreneurs who step up in impact and fund themselves, which is our our rallying cry with our with our impact launchpad for-profit business and our non-profit is there enough conversation is asking the ultimate possibility question can the world even work for 100% of human just asking that question has proved to be a ripple effect where people take more responsibility for it wow there's so much to unpack about all that you just said but a couple of things that popped into my mind is one i i mean and we see this even now uh focus on scarcity uh ignite fear Yes. which ignites people's the sense that they need to fight for or fight yes. against. Yes. Right. And then also what I love about social entrepreneurship, and you're talking about social impact. And I feel like social entrepreneurship is a business model that builds that in to the equation of how do you define success? Am I correct? And I mean, is that how you would think about social entrepreneurship? Uh, absolutely. And, and to be clear on my linkage to Buckminster Fuller in the first place is through social entrepreneurship. We okay. didn't even call it social impact back then, but I studied from Robert Kiyosaki, let's say, who doesn't really highlight a lot of his work with Buckminster Fuller, but was very central to his work and, and other people who studied from Buckminster Fuller who were applying the world game to business in the first place. So I totally agree with you. Social Got entrepreneurship it. plus social impact capital, however, mm -hmm. the two together create the ecosystem of what Even we call more. social impact as a whole. And that's what I'm systemically also pointing to is that there is something we can do about that to manufacture money to invest in humanity. 
Like, I mean it exactly like that. Yeah. Cause I think about, you know, I find myself so often kind of, well, yelling to kind of into nothing <laughs> but, um, is yeah. just like, we need to shift the, cause there is, I love that you're putting it as a game too. Cause that is, and, and right now there are very much winners and losers and the defining thing is money. Um, and so the win is how much money can you create? And too often, I mean, I hate to say zero, but I think zero focuses on the impact on humans and our environment because it's all about the money. This is really, in my view, the unspoken conversation about sustainability. Mm -hmm. Most of us talk about sustainability and we mean the environment. We don't always talk about human beings in that quotient of sustainability. Like that's a worthwhile, like whole other podcast conversation just on that one topic in, in reinforcing what it is you say. But I also think it brings up the subject of what is wealth? What is the distinction between wealth and money? Should we even be asking what that is? Like from an economic standpoint, from buying a chocolate bar in the store, what is the distinction between wealth and money? And when you really boil it down to it, it's survival over time. You know, it's it's if you have survival handled, it's how much choice you have. If you want mm-hmm. more wealth tomorrow for you personally than you had yesterday, it will be expressed in the fact that you have more choice tomorrow after you got paid than the day before and so on and so forth, right? Or relationships that matter to you or, or whatever the case may be, which is why uh, we say basically wealth is built by agreement, not resources. Mm-hmm. Well, in, and that time flexibility too, choice and time is a resource as well. If you have one, true wealth. The one we have least of. Of, right. The mm-hmm. one we really have the most scarce of. I mean, what is there is nothing else but the experience we get to have and 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 how we how we, I think, create wealth is by creating ways for other people to have experience and we monetize that. So like I, as I said earlier, on a, I was on a similar sort of conversation and somebody asked me about this and I said, in my parents generation, the job was to amass money to buy wealth. In the way we just defined wealth, you'd mass the money, then you go out and buy the wealth. That didn't always work out. Uh, we created a lot of garbage in the wake of that money. Uh, you know, we went from, uh, let's say, the, the billionaire philanthropist, you know, then creates all the museums or uh, Nobel creates the Nobel Peace Prize. And that left a lot of collateral damage in its wake. What we can do now is build wealth and monetize it. Not all the wealth do you monetize, but enough of the wealth that you build, you monetize that you become so necessary to the ecosystem, nobody's going to let you starve, if you know what I mean, right? The more valuable you are, right? That's Yeah. yeah. So so let's get kind of, kind of take it down from the kind of philosophical down to strategy and tell me a little bit about what you do with producing a business model for the world game. So tell me a little bit how you engage with people, what, what, you know, how are you helping with this and what does it look like? Sure. It's a combined production of efforts between our nonprofit and our for-profit. Let me explain what our for-profit is, which is a venture studio based out of out of the UK. Um, and like other venture studios of either social impact entrepreneurship that we focus on or just innovation and startup that others do, our job is to cultivate and develop projects and bring them to fruition. That includes, you know, introducing them to money, resources, whatever is required, their messaging. Um, their technology, you know, whatever the case may be. So we bring all those resources together and people, companies like us and our competitors face a very significant problem, which is we spend 10 times as much of our time on 
finding money for projects than we do on developing them. And we have a, this human crisis coming down the pike that, that we're, is left to our responsibility. We, we like to imagine it and think that is our, is our problem to solve. That's what makes us social on, uh, impact developers, basically. And so the problem is that the access to money is based on very high risk venture pools. And humanity is facing this huge crisis coming down the pipe that is much more unsafe than safety for money. So we came to the conclusion that the problem isn't there's a lack of capital, the problem is that there's a lack of safety for capital to show up. And in World War One and World War II, when existence was on the line, we created war bonds and people stepped up. Not just investors, not just retail investors, which is still top to 10% of the population, right? The non-investors had a place to save and park their money to pool capital for efforts to defeat the threat to existence of being the Nazis, let's say. Well, are we under threat of existence now? So don't we need something like that? And doesn't have to exist on a global level. So our solution to this problem is to create an ownerless social impact investment bank that is global in nature in which ordinary depositors that are non-investors can park their money and have a better rate of return than they'd get at a bank where they park their money. And instead, of it being backed by an FDIC would be backed by a DIC, but that DIC would be global in nature and have a whole lot of parties backing it such that people would have a legitimate alternative to their bank accounts and they would know that when they park their money there, it could be utilized for direct investment in the future of humanity as we define social impact by 17 sustainable development goals and other sorts of indicators. So people go to sleep at night knowing their money's protected and it's going to a good use. And if we had created that model, which we've spent about four years on the verge now being able to create, if, if we had that in existence, we would then manufacture $100 million social impact funds one at a time over and over and over and over again, thousands of times. And these would be ownerless social impact investment funds that would therefore only have a responsibility to survive and keep investing in other projects. They would have no outside investors to reward. They would have no no obligations to anybody, uh, no vested interests. They would simply exist to survive. And not all of them would, of course. There's winners and losers in that, in that sort of venture. But the winners would be far greater than the losers, such that we'd have a proliferation of social impact-oriented investment bank. Not something only for us who have come up with this idea to benefit from, but we would drop it into the space of all social impact. So there'd be like, you want to start up a $100 million social impact fund? It'd be like going and applying for an SBA loan. I mean, you'd have certain requirements you have to meet in order to qualify as you would with an SBA loan, but something that would really, really allow the future, let's say in my past, the 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 Peace Corps oriented volunteer who like signs up for the Peace Corps for a few years and then has to like get real and you know get and make it and have a job could spend 30 years in social impact entrepreneurship management, make a lot of money doing it, and would not have to trade off one for the other. That was that's what would proliferate as a result of a global ownerless social impact investment bank backing that. And that's what we've been out to do. And in order for us to have been put in the position to start to organize an effort like that has come about by the other part of our work, which is this silly little conversation of three words called, is there enough? Provoking the question of what really is there enough of and what really isn't there enough of, which is absolutely situational and conditional. But the engagement of the conversation, which has people from different vantage points with their unique perspective on what there's not enough of, coming to the realization that where whatever you do to address what's not enough of in the world is either going to involve war or agreement. It might not be war with a gun, right? It can be with words. It can be with, you know, culture. It can be with all sorts of impacts, negative 
creatively we can make, but we come, you and I, sitting here and everybody listening to us, we all come from 70,000 years of war. We don't wake up in a generation and just flip a switch. We have to really pay attention that the opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is agreement. And we're not very good at that. No, we are not. <laughs> I would say we have been working exponentially backwards in that arena lately. Um, and it's very painful <laughs> as a person who's prone to help people yeah, come together and see where there's common ground. And I'm sure you're in the same boat there. So where are you at in the process? So, I mean, if someone was interested, is there a place where they could invest their money now? No, what, what they're exists right now is a social conversation and a social campaign where they can participate tomorrow. And as I've done in a five-year-old kindergarten class on a dare, (laughs) I've had this conversation um, to just begin to examine what conversation are we provoking in the world? And how does this provocation provoke to safety as opposed to mostly what we associate with provocation, which is to danger? Um, We are going to, later this year, announce plans for a tokenized environment to everything we're doing in a media uh, structure where our people who participate in our conversation, let's say, we, we think of them as, you know, community audience members, really, of a of a a future television network that will be focused on activities and experiences that tend to breed collaboration and then very simply like that. One of the things we're launching in 2023 along these lines about, you know, human beings and, and war and agreement and all that good stuff is we're launching what we think is the last treaty that any of us ever need to sign, a treaty of humanity, not nations, that if you do that in enough numbers of people, um, it's kind of impossible for a a nation to go to war out of a global culture like that, should you be able to make that proliferate, which is a big if, I I would agree, in its infancy stages. But it's uh, definitely a worthwhile social experiment. (laughs) Uh, For sure. (laughs) Please, please. (laughs) Yeah. And what what our social experiment is, is to see if we can get, and we certainly believe we have a certain strategy to to do this. I'll just state this for history, for where you interview me today, um, of getting 100 million people to actually sign this treaty as a, as a treaty and treat it like a treaty. We think that's possible to do. We don't know, of course, at the end of those 100 million people signing it, did it make any difference or not? Or was it a good difference? We could debate all of that. I've had people debate me that telling people that there's something to transcend war with is somehow dangerous and unsafe itself because it's not the real world and, and that sort of thing. And that's a worthy conversation to have as well. But but that's really where we're coming from on what people can do now. They can participate in our conversation. And later when we announce that there's a token, of course, you know, then they can have some participation if they choose to on something like that. But they're they're distinct things. They're not linked together. There's a conversation, a conversation, and there's a tokenization that will emerge as well, just as any of our products do. Got it. Got it. So if someone wanted to engage in a conversation or get involved in that conversation right now, is there already a platform for that piece? There is. They can just go to istthereenough.org. There we go. Is there enough.org? <clears throat> and that'll there that'll be in the show org. notes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, so, so interesting and so timely. And um, yeah, I just feel like, oh, I hope you can hit the accelerator button. <laughs> um, so tell me what experiences from your life have motivated you uh, to move towards making this unique impact? You know, I knew you were going to possibly ask me this question from some, <laughs> some discussion we had prior. And uh, I, I, I'm, you know, be- called the most positive man in the world by two people on the same day in different languages who don't know each other. Like I'm very proud of, you know, being a very uh, 
you know, a possibility oriented person. So, you know, what motivates me comes from the lowest moment of my life, you know, because after that, it was like nothing could be worse than that. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's put my life in sort of an experiment, you know, which obviously I'm, I'm really derivative of Buckminster Fuller and being transparent of that. I only realized later after I came to that realization that he had done the same Um, after he lost a child. I I lost everything I had. So I was a little more, I don't know, narcissistic compared to him. I didn't lose a child. Right. But, but I did lose everything and every person that was important to me at a certain point and like living on a couch, that sort of thing. And I was involved in some really pivotal points in technology and media, you know, before that. So it wasn't like I lacked abilities. Right. I had done some really, you know, instrumental things that I'm proud of, uh, but still it got to that point. And somehow circumstances led me to do something for somebody else as a favor in that state that turned out to be very meaningful to them. And I don't know what caught on in my head was that like, I didn't feel like I'm worth anything, but at least that person got something out of this. And somehow I saw it sort of like a piece of food and I started doing something more along those lines. I wasn't looking like how I could succeed. I was just, I'm being very detailed about sort of how I came to the conclusion that doing stuff for others made made me feel better about myself. And when I went around the world in 2019, 22 countries asking the question, is there enough? What surprised me was people coming back and saying that their question was, am I enough? And I had put all this behind me. So I hadn't even sort of made that connection. Um, but when it came to that place where I had the realization, this is what I was doing, I said, what if, and I didn't know the answer to this question at the time, but I said, what if I was to just do the most I could on the most amount of people kind of thing, purely out of taking myself out of my pain? Wow. And I love that connection too, the am I enough? Because absolutely people have that. And how do you, uh, I think one of the ways to move yourself out of that is finding that sense of purpose, which is kind of what you've done here and you've made it this big purpose. But, um, and if people can jump in on this, if they're feeling like they lack purpose right now, it can become part of their purpose too. There's a lot of ways in the moment to feel worthwhile without even knowing fully the purpose too. Like sometimes we're very hard on ourselves. Why don't I know my purpose? You know, <laughs> you know, right. is it supposed to know my purpose or I've been teaching people about purpose and I've lost my purpose <laughs> and I can't do that. <laughs> you know, so um, I think, well, Tom- although I think when people start feeling bad about their purpose, that's that whole comparison thing and in our instant sure. gratification and um, capitalism and <laughs> kind of like, I'm not making enough money from doing this. Th- I mean, at times, some people are making a lot of money uh, fulfilling a purpose, but, um, but I think a lot of times we can attach these other definitions that can minimize or have us devalue our purpose. Yeah, I mean, and it's such a powerful phenomenon, Kirsten, it goes on of not only am I enough, are we enough? Mm-hmm. A nation can ask that. I've, I've visited nations that carry a chip on their shoulder and, and it's a chip on the shoulder of the nation, <laughs> not just mm. a family or an individual or whatever. That they, that nation had, I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to you know cast aspersions, but if they had a, a different perspective given their position in the world that I'm familiar with, of where they sit, they could be a global player on such an extraordinary level. And mm-hmm. so it, it's it's a very big thing. This am I enough? Are we enough? Kind of thing. Even humanity, when you ask the question, can the world work for 100% of humanity? Of course, you're going to bring people in the conversation and say, no way, because people are too cruel and we're too warlike. And and for me, all they're doing is talking about history, of course, but for them, that's human nature. And that's the end of the story. Um, mm-hmm. Where other people see possibilities, like when you have the conversation of universal income, which people like me believe is 
inevitable. Um, and when you have universal income, what will happen? Did we lose something of humanity by losing the work ethic where you're required to work for a living? You know, are we going to be okay with that sort of society where some people might not use it the way we think they should <laughs> and, and other people will go out and start businesses and, you know, go to school and, you know, do great works of art and, you know, launch things that transform humanity as a result of that. And and, and what I say to people when I'm doing, so, uh, we're building stuff along the lines for, for universal income, by the way, but, but uh, which is why I know a lot about this. We've done a lot of social research on it, but when you ask people this question, we come to a conclusion of, well, some people are going to use it really well. And some people in your eyes are not going to use it really well. Do we know how many fit in each of those buckets? And do we have a right to decide that that's a good or not good idea if we haven't tested that since human life depends on it? Well, and as we, you know, when we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when, uh, you know, people of privilege are the ones who are asking kind of more focusing on even what is my passion? What is my purpose? And if you're only focusing on how do I get my next meal and I'm starving, um, you're not really thinking about that. You don't have the opportunity, the privilege to have time to think about that. So what if, cause I do, you know, we're all given gifts to use in service and, uh, you know, to benefit others. And, and if we all get to combine our gifts, like what an awesome world it would be and who knows what we could make happen. But a lot of people never have that opportunity to even explore what are my gifts? What are my passions? Because they're only focusing on you know, the necessity of staying alive. It's so interesting that you bring up Maslow because I tell people that people engage in the question of, is there enough? And I'm just observing and reporting to you. I didn't go to create, is there enough? I'm working on a big, big, big finance model for, for global uh, impact, of course, when this thing arrives on the scene. But when people engage in the conversation of, is there enough? They're having a Maslow conversation without knowing Maslow is what I want to report to you. Mm -hmm. um, like when we train people, because people help us in our social research, we have something when they go to the website for isthereenough.org, they'll see something called the Academy. We think we're an agreement Academy <laughs> is what we, is what we now think of this silly little conversation. And, uh, and, and basically, the part of the Agreement Academy is people going out and conducting social research with us, taking a poll of what people think there's enough and not enough. And we have a survey to that, so you can do it individually on the website as well. My point for bringing this up is when people answer the question of is there enough, they talk about what there's enough of and what there's not enough. And that's as unique as a fingerprint to each person so far that we've seen. And when they're talking about what there's not enough, Kirsten, they're at the core of their identity, the core of their identity. It's, it's about their values, not their parents, not their religions, you know, that all goes into it because part of who they are, we are our history, but we're also our choices. We are our history and our choices when we come to, when we ask, are we enough? It's not really the question. The question is, how are we our history and how are we our choices? That's the real question of Emma. Um, and so uh, it's, it's even people, I mean, just to report to you, this is a real thing. Uh, there's an orphanage uh, led by a leader in Sierra Leone whose family has all been about orphanages. It's like the family business. Um, and tragically, uh, the leader of this orphanage uh, lost both his parents and an uncle and another member of his family in a fire, you know, that leveled the entire village and he had to rebuild from scratch. And he's a part of this, is there enough conversation? And he's clearly not very high on, on what the way we look at the, the Maslow hierarchy. Neither of those five-year-olds I just said I talked to, right? So mm -hmm. it's almost like a precursor conversation to being able to understand that the, the powerful impact of understanding Maslow. That's what I wanted to share with you. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, so here I'm going to ask now, like what fuels your passion about this work? Like if you think back to all the, to the impact that you're working to make and um, have made, can you think of, you know, and I don't know, you're, you're looking at a global scale. So, but what's an impact that, 
that you've made that really fuels your passion. And I think that's so important because it gives us that fuel to keep going. I do get a lot of strength from having seen people carry the conversation we started on their own in other parts of the world that we haven't been. That really, really gets me. I feel like that's such a validation that something can ripple that way with technology that we have now, of course, and all those things that we can meet in our clubhouses and WhatsApps and you know, be able to do podcasts so easily as you and I are able to do. And, you know, we are living in the most potentially collaborative time in the history of humanity with all of our strife and tribalism. It's so, so ironic, right? Or, or we're, you know, worried about the future where you can go from an idea in your head to a reality in business cheaper and faster than you ever could. So, so as far as answering your question is concerned, when I see people replicating our conversation or, or even our work on the social impact investment side, that's what really, that's what really gives me motivation. That's awesome. I've gotten to have that experience just on like organizational level. Like if I work with leaders at the top tier of the organization, and then all of a sudden you kind of hear words and phrases coming <laughs> from team members, you're like, oh, the ripple effect, it's happening. So I can't imagine the excitement of uh, on a global scale, watching a ripple happen. That, uh, that must be really fulfilling. Uh, and also probably uh, ignites a lot of motivation and <laughs> to really get moving quicker. Uh, so tell me, what is the biggest internal or external challenge that you've had to overcome uh, during this process and how did you overcome it? I had to have the patience to listen to people learning what we wanted to do, which used to take 10 hours to explain. And now maybe takes 10 minutes in certain instances because of how it's evolved. I had to listen to the same two objections all the way through and always listen to them as if they were brand new. Because again, almost like a fingerprint, everybody gave it in a different way. And the first one, uh, the first objection was it's way too big, which would sometimes be expressed as, wow, that's very ambitious, <laughs> which would be a subtext of good luck with that. <laughs> or people who took the time to really understand it and saw how big it was and they'd peel the onion of it. I mean, it's very unusual to combine both a global nonprofit and a global for-profit and put them together in one kind of collaboration. I, you know, I admit that. You know, so if you're going to if you're going to set up something to convey as a, as a guy who invests in projects, I would already be looking at is the founder doing too much myself <laughs> if I saw that. But listening to that and having people look at it and understand the depth of it when they did, they would then say, you don't know how to tell the story. And every time I would listen to that, I would invite them to tell me how they would tell the story. And I'll be honest with you, only one time out of 10 did they give me anything that was really substantive or pivotal. Uh, the rest was good market research, right? Because a lot of times people would say, you don't know how to tell the story. And then I would ask them how, and they wouldn't really know how to tell it themselves. Uh, but it was simply because it took them a while to understand everything we're doing. And they're like, I'm a smart person. So how will the rest of... There are people who look at stuff like this, you know, who go, well, I'll understand it because, you know, I put a lot of time in research or I'm smart or whatever the reason is, but John Q. Public won't. So those kinds of conversations about not knowing how to tell the story we were tackling too much actually became the source of our power. And I say power, not in a big, big deal sense of power, just the ability to get more done than you could yesterday, right? Little, little bit more agency is what I mean. A little more influence was because we listened carefully to these two objections and we learned how to unite everything we were saying into one thing, which is essentially, if you think about this podcast, an expression of that is we've focused on the world game from the beginning of defining what it is throughout this entire conversation. So we have united this very big deal into something people can really access, whether you've heard of the world game or not, it makes no difference. I've tested that. And then, and then the second part, you know, about, about 
how to tell a story is sort of answered in, in, in that, but, but the aspect of how to really carry off our big ambitions simply comes about by, can you get agreement on it or not? You said it during this podcast where you can sit around where we all know what sort of needs to take place. And for some frustrating reason does not. And we're sitting around looking at each other, like looking at our political leaders or any other kind of leader we want, when we have the ability to take action amongst ourselves as social entrepreneurs. If you can get the money for it and put it together with a group of people and get the people together for it, there's very little you can't address in this world. Well, good for you on having the, I don't know if I want to call it patience, but you know, I think hearing the same thing over and over, the same objection, but still honing in on listening and allowing that person to have the gift of being heard versus, because I'm sure there were times when you'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let me get from point A to point Z. I've been through this conversation before, <laughs> but you gave them that gift each individually, even if it was the thousandth time that you were hearing that. Um, and through that, you got the gift of um, more practice on kind of recalibrating the story a bit, et cetera. But, but yeah, that even that alone just gave so many people that gift. I really love the way you break it all down and, and clarify, you know, what it is I'm saying. I think I understand more what I just said after hearing you. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you for that. Um, well, so if someone is feeling intrigued through this conversation, I know there's the, is there enough.org, uh, the first agreement.com, but where, where would be a good starting point to learn more about what you're up to and also get involved in this conversation? So it is on the, is there enough.org website? That would be the simplest portal from the point of view of the think tank part of what we do. Okay, we are a think tank and a do tank if you really look at the two sides, the nonprofit and the for profit side of us. But I think pursuant to this conversation, have that understanding is start there and you will see two points of action on the top of our website. And one is our treaty that we've talked about here, and the other is our survey, and they're linked. Right. It's very rare that somebody either doesn't have the conversation with us or maybe heard a podcast like this, but very rare that somebody hasn't gone through our survey, which makes a case as to why does humanity even need a treaty and what would it be about, which is a personal commitment to yourself. It is not a, a treaty with all the other 100 million people that signed it. It's only a treaty with yourself and your history to say, I myself, I don't know what everyone else is doing, but I am going to make agreement over conflict wherever I possibly can within my life and make that a focus. It's very general, but not ambiguous because it is a focus of replacing war with something else. And it's, it's not war with a gun. It can be war with language. It can be war with organizations and focus. There's a lot of ways that we commit war every day with each other by, by historical, in my, in my point of view, by historical attitude, not necessarily in our DNA, you know, from a cultural standpoint. And it takes focus and attention, <clears throat> takes focus and attention to replace it with something else, not just laying down your arms and your, mm -hmm. your warlike nature, but give yourself another game to play, which is what the world game is all about. And uh, so the treaty is like a, a, a little baby step of the world game if you make that commitment with yourself and no one's going to hold you accountable but you. And so there is a page about our treaty on there that I would direct everybody to. And you can go through the survey and you immediately get a spot in our pre-launch or you can request a spot in our pre-launch, which is 50,000 people that will be part 
part of our pre-launch before we go live. And we intend to make some historical references to that, to that initial group of people. There's also a forthcoming campaign around our book, which will involve like some Zoom meetings people are having with each other where they're discussing what enough is and some of the points that we bring up in the book where the substance really comes into how do you take this concept of agreement and actually turn it into something economic, an agreement economy, um, which is something we're very focused on producing clarity around. Um, and so people could advance purchase the book, not even on, you know, Amazon yet, but even just, you know, within ours through uh, a donation to our 501c3. Our 501c3 is just about creating more collaboration in the world. That's basically what it was approved for tax status on. So they can certainly participate that way if they don't have time. And I think from there, everything else that we have going on, including our eventual tokenization and in our for-profit stuff, is very easily accessible. And so I think for, that would probably be the simplest answer to your question is just go to isthereenough.org and either go to the treaty or the survey or both. Oh, I love that. And please, everyone go to that treaty. I I think, again, I'm I'm just so intrigued and impressed with what you're, you know, the energy that you're putting in and, and uh, the investment that you're making and pulling people together towards these just simple kind of personal accountability pieces. I think back just over the last you know, five years, you know, the, the divide in the United States has uh, increased exponentially. I've made a personal commitment that regardless, like I will continue to remember that we are fellow human beings and we have way more in common than not. And that our desires and, you know, the focus for our future and what we long for, for our kids, all are the same. And um, that I will never name call or think in terms of sides. That's the only, that's like the one thing that I feel like I've been able to do during this period around all of that. And what I love is it sounds like there are going to be similar kinds of things that you're encouraging people to do, just personal commitments uh, that people can make that ultimately, if we're each taking those personal commitments, um, that already kind of becomes a collaboration and a, and a way to bring people together. Just as a start, I appreciate you uh, clarifying, you know, that initial small incremental step of movement in a direction that we can get behind. Not too much at stake yet. Just let's take a baby step in that direction. Yes. Maybe we can uh, better survive and adapt to the existential challenges that are certainly coming down the path. Well, and what I love is it all leads to this, you know, this much bigger conversation that we started with that can just feel overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, but all it boiled down to right now is just starting with that little baby step. That's exactly. And then keep going from there. Yeah, that's perfect. Great. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for joining me today and for all the really important work that you're doing. I can't wait to check out um, all this information more and uh, find my own treaty to make my own personal commitments. And if you would like to connect with Daniel, all of his information can be found on today's show notes. And you can find that by going to defeatthedrama.com. Click on the podcast tab and go to episode 289. But I will tell you again, in case you've got paper and pen there available or a way to type on your phone or something, is there enough.org, thefirstagreement.com. And then you can find him also on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, mostly around, I will say, is there enough? So there's is there enough um, at LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and then on LinkedIn, Impact 
Launchpad. So, but again, all those links will be available. And uh, if you are looking for your own personal ways to make an impact in your area, uh, also do check out myimpactacademy.com. You can find two weeks free by going to myimpactacademy.com forward slash join, where I have steps that you can take to build a high performing team, personal growth, engage in healthy communication and relationships, all those kind of things that you need to really make your impact in the world. So thanks again, Daniel, for uh, uh, spending time with me today and for all that you've shared for the listeners. It's been a pleasure, Kirsten. I hope we'll get to talk again in the future as things unfold. Absolutely. All right. Make it a great day. 